56-yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's going to win the football game. He ran the missed field goal back. He ran it back 109 yards. They're not going to keep him off the field tonight. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Auburn wins. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl in the most unbelievable fashion you will ever see. I cannot believe it. 34-28. And we thought a miracle at Jordan-Hare was amazing. Oh, my Lord in heaven. Welcome to the Place at the Table podcast. Thanksgiving edition. You may be stuck in traffic right now, and I'm sorry about that, but... The good news is there is turkey on the way and dressing or stuffing if you're a Yankee. Uh, All of that is is coming to you. But to help make things a little easier, to help pass the time, very special guest, Cole Kublik of the SEC Network, of his own radio show on WUMP, of the Jocks Roundtable in Birmingham, of AL.com fame. How many jobs do you have, Cole? (laughs) <laughs> too many, too many, but uh, you got to make it work. So I'll, uh, that's right. I'm, I'm always open for more. So, so I'm calling you today because there there are a couple reasons. There's obviously a, a football game involving a school that you played for uh, that's happening on Saturday. That's of of fairly significant importance, but it's also Thanksgiving week, and I don't know anybody else who has better opinions on food than you, other than probably me. So I, I think we, we can get into a very serious discussion of the Thanksgiving table. But first, we should probably talk about a little football. And before we get into the Iron Bowl preview, because I, that's, I really want to talk to you about that. You, you played offensive line at Auburn. Uh, you cover the league for the SEC Network now. We know how much fun the last time Alabama and Auburn being a de facto SEC West championship game was. So that's going to be fun. But let's let's talk a little bit about this coaching carousel first. And I want to ask you because, you know, you, you are t- more tapped into Auburn than just about anybody. The whole Gus Malzahn Arkansas thing. Is that all just coming from money people in Arkansas? Or would he potentially actually be interested in that? I think he would. Um, and I'm, I haven't spoken to him or he hasn't really given me a, a personal indication on the fact that he wants to um, say something that I, that I know and I'm aware of. I do think there's some interest there. And I think if we just sort of use common sense, we can see that it's something that's viable. He played there. He, he grew up there. He, he coached in high school there. He, he was offensive coordinator there. I, I think that school for him means what Auburn does to me, what Florida does to you, what LSU does to Booger McFarland, where if any of us got a chance to represent our school and, and that was our profession is to coach there and go back and do that, we would we would probably want to do that. I mean, it's, you know, it's the Kirby Smart scenario. Um, I, I think that that could probably be considered as close to his dream job as any other school in, in, in America. And I think from a business perspective also – 
here there's a phrase that has become very trendy and popular here in the last month or so, and that is restarting your clock as a coach. Mm. So you kind of look at it just from a financial perspective of, all right, if I'm making four and a half at Auburn, and I know it's not necessarily guaranteed contractually, but you're looking at, if I can get another year or two out of this, that's $9 million. Even if I were to go down to three and a half at Arkansas, but I knew I could get five to seven, well, you just made more money. And I think, I, I think you get more than that at Arkansas, too, if you went. But I just it, it seems to me, because I, I get the whole mama calls kind of thing, but he did work there, and it was kind of crazy the year he spent there. It wouldn't seem like there would be good memories of that. No, but I, I know Houston are, Nuts I, not there anymore. I think there are people who carry a lot of clout that he's close to and tight to and that are fans of his. And that might be viewed as just as important or more important to him. That sort of that support from the powers that be. And let's let's be honest, there and I don't know if Jeff Long is, is gone, so you have the same, some similar questions at Arkansas, but if some of the if some of the boosters, if some of the some of the boards, the president, the people above the athletic director at Auburn have lost trust or faith in Gus Malzahn, or that relationship has soured, and he knows regardless who the AD is, that he can go into Arkansas and numbers four, six, and twelve on the totem pole are his guys. That's a pretty good feeling. We had that that gives you a lot of security to know that a couple big money guys are behind me and they want to make this happen. So. I think there are a lot of different ways you can sort of twist it, manipulate it, and look at it. But I do think that there is some serious reality to it. And I, I'm almost to the point where if Auburn lost, I, I think I might expect it to happen. Wow. See, I just – I don't know. And, and maybe it's it's because I'm not thinking of it as a going-home deal because of the whole him being there before thing. Uh, I just feel like – you, you're you're taking about the same amount of crazy, except without the chance to catch lightning in a bottle and win a national title. Because at Auburn, you can recruit the players who can win a national title. I, sure. I'm not sure that's possible at Arkansas. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I think the the counter to that would be Petrino having them at three in November, mid November, that it's it's more feasible. I guess maybe from a lifestyle perspective is what you would look at it. You know, does yeah. Does Gus Malzahn take you as the end-all, be-all, win-or-else type guy? I'm not sure if that if his personality really spells that to me. Not saying that he's not competitive and doesn't want to win and doesn't put the work in. He does, but you know, I, I think Gus Malzahn can have a life away from football and enjoys being around his family. And if he enjoyed where he was and some of the other people that were around him more, maybe it makes more sense for him. I'm not, no, I'm not debating which is a better program. That, that's not up for me. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Well, let, let's let's debate a different one. So as we're recording this, Chip Kelly is still trying to decide between Florida and, and UCLA. Uh, if you're listening to this later and he's already decided, we're sorry we could not be precogs and tell you where he was going to go. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if you've got the choice, Florida or UCLA – how do you handicap that? And, and you know, I, I got a feeling I know what you'd pick, but what do you think Chip Kelly, who's a little bit different cat, would pick? Yeah, and I don't know Chip personally. I'm not friends with him. I, I haven't spent a ton of time around him. 
Um, I do know people who, who know him, and I've talked to them, and I've obviously watched his career. And I think the easy answer would just be for us to say Florida. But I, my eyes have been opened to the Florida job a little bit here in the last six or eight months. <laughs> I, I think that it's nuts. I, I think a lot of us for a long time, because of the success in basketball, because of the success in baseball, we look at the championships across the board in that athletic department, what Jeremy Foley did, and just how strong everything in that athletic department seems to be. And that the brand that is Florida and the brand that has been Florida football, especially in the last 20, 25 years, that we just immediately say, and you hear people do it all the time, top five job in the country, top ten job in the country. And it's not that it can't be. We see it. We've seen it twice um, and in our lifetimes with two different coaches. Have that thing rolling and be maybe the premier college football program for, for multiple seasons. But I, I can't help but take a step back now and look at what Will Muschamp is doing at South Carolina. Look at what Jim McElwain did at Colorado State. Knowing the kind of players that Ron Zook was able to get there, not that I'm saying I think he should have been contending for BCS championships back then, and how they chewed those guys up and spit them out. And kind of wondered to myself, is this job maybe, and I don't even know what the right word is, Andy, Difficult, quirky, complicated. Harder, harder than you think, I think, would be the phrase you're looking for. Absolutely. And it's the, – the, the thing I keep getting sent to me on social media that is, is the biggest falsehood is the, quote, Florida recruits itself. It most certainly does not. Recruiting in the state of Florida is a cutthroat, bloodthirsty thing, and you've got to work your tail off to stay just equal because – Jimbo Fisher will come in and take who he wants. Mark Richt is doing very well at Miami. He'll take what he wants. Nick Saban goes into Broward County or Dade County once a year and grabs a receiver. I, the, you, you've got to fight everybody if you're the head coach at Florida, and it's not easy. It's, it, and this is one – I don't think McIlwain understood that part of the job. I know Muschamp did absolutely understand it. Uh, this is the one thing with Chip Kelly that – that I wonder about because he was not part of a cutthroat recruiting operation at Oregon and UCLA is a lot more similar. Now don't get me wrong. The, the recruiting out in LA is, is, is tough and you got to work hard to recruit to UCLA as well, but it's not the same as it is in the state of Florida and in the deep South. And I look at those as two different recruiting environments and if you're the coach at Florida, you have to do both. You have to be good in the state of Florida, but you've also got to be able to go up into Atlanta and get a kid, uh, occasionally go to North Carolina, South Carolina, and get somebody. And it's not easy. It is 24-7, 365, and there's a reason that Nick Saban has done what he's done. He's the most aggressive recruiter on Alabama's staff. Kirby Smart is the most aggressive recruiter on Georgia's staff. Will Muschamp is the most aggressive recruiter on South Carolina's staff. Uh, Ed Orgeron is the most aggressive recruiter on LSU staff. I, I think it's got to come from the top down in a job like that. And if you don't want that, your quality of life suffers. And I think Jim, Jim McElwain experienced that in a big way at Florida. I would agree. I think Brett Bielema has told me how 
he's made a conscious effort to go to South Florida and recruit me. He pulled Alex Collins out of there. Look what Steve yep. Robin is doing at South Carolina. Dabo Sweeney has made a living in Florida the past five to seven years and got and, an elite. And who was who Clemson's best recruiter on the Tommy Bowden staff? Dabo Sweeney. So you're not recruiting against your other in-state schools. You're recruiting against half the country pretty much. And, and that yeah. makes it a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult. I, from a personality standpoint, I just have not ever thought that Chip Kelly is an SEC guy. Because I don't know. And, and listen, I haven't lived the UCLA life or the Pac-12 life. I don't really know. But I do know that at Florida and any other SEC schools, you're the face of the program in February, March, June, August, January not to mention every month of the college football season. And a lot of guys don't want that and don't like that, and it's not comfortable for them. And if that's something that bothers you or you don't really want to do, then that's not the place for you. And added to that, the expectation at Florida, that's not just to win, but it's to score points and be dynamic on offense and win. And I, I, I think the, what you're looking for is win every game the way Steve Spurrier won games. Yeah. So, That's the expectation. I, mean, I don't really know how to handicap it, like you said, but I'm picking one of the two. I've said all along, I don't think Chip Kelly coaches in the SEC. So I would definitely go UCLA, a place where I think you have a fertile recruiting ground there in Southern California. You can utilize your ties that you already created in the Pac-12 on the West Coast to be able to bring guys in. I think you'd have a much better opportunity. And this is, this is in the last two to three years, especially since I've – become a regular employee with the SEC Network doing games every weekend. The most important facet, in my opinion, of being a college head football coach, especially in the SEC, I think he would be able to, he would, he would more easily be able to put a staff together that could be successful in Los Angeles than he would Gainesville. And I think that is the number one most critical facet to being successful as an SEC coach. You are as good as the staff that you put together. And that's from teaching in fundamentals, developing players, recruiting, in-game coaching, guys who you can rely on to give you another voice when it comes to making certain decisions, guys who maybe you don't have to worry about off the field as much from an organizational standpoint. I think you are as good as the staff that you can put together, and I don't know how good of an SEC staff Chip Kelly could realistically put together. Yeah, and, and it's not impossible because, remember, Urban Meyer was not from SEC country. Now, the thing Urban Meyer was was an extremely aggressive recruiter, and you've seen him do the same thing at Ohio State. But he, he came in and put together a good staff, and it kind of mixed it up. He, had, he brought Dan Mullen with him. He brought John Hevesy and Billy Gonzalez with him. But then he went and, and hired Doc Holliday because he knew Doc Holliday was a good recruiter in South Florida. Uh, he hired Greg Madison because Greg Madison can recruit anybody. Uh, he hired Stan Drayton from Mississippi State because he knew how to work with running backs and he was good at recruiting in the Deep South. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's possible to do it if you're not from the area. But the the part that I keep coming back to that I think you, you hit on as well, the head coach has to want to really recruit a ton in the SEC. I, I don't I, – I can't think of a recent – deal where it's worked in the SEC where the head coach hasn't been a very, very active recruiter. No, I would agree. I, have, I don't think it has. And if it, if it has, the, the sustainability was there. 
because uh, I don't, I, like you said, you're not going to be able to continue to reload your program with guys who can help you go out no matter how well you're coaching them and compete for championships. That's exactly right. So speaking of competing for championships, there is a, a division championship on the line at Jordan-Hare Stadium this weekend. And, I mean, this is, this is as big as it gets. Alabama-Auburn for a, a place in the SEC championship game is basically a playoff round of 16 game <laughs> because, you know, who, who, it's possible if Alabama were to lose that they could still get in. But it's a lot safer, safer road to just win this game and then win the SEC championship game. Cole, what do you think is going to be the most important factor in this game? I think it's the Auburn, the, the Auburn front seven against Alabama's offensive line in, in, in backs against their run game because it's multifaceted. And I think if there is a misnomer with this Alabama football team, it's that this offensive line is a 2009 Alabama, 95 Nebraska type offensive line because it's just not. And you know, this is not a Wisconsin Joe Thomas offensive line. It's just running people off the ball and demolishing folks at the point of attack. This offense has won primarily because of scheme. They're out scheming people. Now, they have personnel that makes it a lot easier to do that, but with Damian Harris and Jalen Hurts and company, if you find guys out of position, that's when you turn 13 plays into – 83-yard plays, and Alabama's been able to do that consistently this season. So the discipline, the run fits, understanding how to align themselves, the reads, when to attack, when to lay back, how Kevin Steele handles that group, I think that's the matchup in the game. I really do, because even if you slow down Scarborough, Harris, Jacobs, you still have to deal with Jalen Hurts, who is an inside-outside runner. I think he's an elite ball carrier. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he, he does it to the level of Saquon Barkley, but the way he's asked to do it, he does it in an elite manner, and he can take over a game. So I think that, to me, is the real, the real matchup to watch because that Auburn front just demolished Georgia's offensive line a couple of weeks ago, and that's a group that is, is somewhat similar. Not overly talented across the board, plays very well together, uh, relies a lot on zone scheme stuff, try to get you out of position, utilize cutback runs if you're not at home on the backside. And Alabama does a lot of the same. And Brian Dayball has done a phenomenal job week in, week out of taking one piece of a run play or two and changing up one part of it. You know, they, they might run zone right, but the, the left tackle backside is going to block man, and that gives them a bigger cutback lane. Or Jalen Hurts might run zone read, but he's reading the opposite defensive end, therefore throwing everybody off and getting you out of place. There, there are a lot of little things that they've tinkered with over the course of the season that you can't prepare for because you haven't seen it. It's not, it's not on tape. So I think how Kevin Steele manages that front seven, it's because Alabama and Auburn's offensive lines have both struggled with movement the last few weeks. Auburn with Louisiana Monroe, uh, a little bit with Georgia, and Alabama with Mississippi State. Neither one of these defensive lines moves around a whole lot. I mean, they, they pretty much just sit there, attack one gap, take on double teams, and cause a lot of problems. Because they're good enough to do it. Not a lot of teams are. They, a lot of teams have to move to be able to gain advantage. So I'll be interested to see if Jeremy Pruitt or Kevin Steele go a little more high risk in this game 
because they've seen these offensive lines struggle with it at times recently. But this is an elite Auburn defensive line. This is a very underrated group of linebackers that Kevin Steele has. And if they can win first and second down, I think getting Jalen Hurts on third and eight, third and 10, third and 12, third and seven, obvious pass downs with a guy like Jeff Holland, especially if he's working on the right tackle, could have a lot of success, is exactly where you want to be and where you want to try to live. And Kevin Steele's the kind of guy, Andy, that would tell you, if we can get them there and that quarterback picks us apart, he goes 22 of 28 for 283 yards and three touchdowns, and guess what? You beat us. You got us. Because he's, he's okay giving someone something that he doesn't believe is your strength. And if you, right. if you, if you prove that it is and you take it and you, and you win with it, then he'll walk away and say, my guys did what they were supposed to do. That's what we gave them. They took it. More power to them. So I think that's where he wants to live. And if they can get there, then Auburn will have a really good chance to win the game. It's, it's always fascinating to me when Alabama plays a team that can kind of match them athlete for athlete. We don't see it very often. We saw it in the last two national title games against Clemson. We saw it when they played Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl. It feels like this is one of those games where talent-wise, these teams match up. And I, I don't know that we've had that in this game in a while. No, it's been a few years at least. Um, I mean, I would even say, you know, the 13 team was more scheme from Auburn than it was just guys. Um, now, 2010 was, was two guys <laughs> for, for the most part. <laughs> and one of them was really, really good that day. So, but you had one on each side of the ball, and that proved that sometimes that's all you need. But I, I think there are, there are some some parts of the scheme on both sides of the ball that make Auburn very dangerous. And I think there are a lot of guys. You look at the matchups across the board. I mean, there's not a – the center, the middle, the middle of that offensive line for Alabama does not match up well with, with Dontavious Russell and Derrick Brown. They don't. The right tackle does not match up well with Jeff Holland. Uh, you know, from any, nobody matches up well with Jeff Holland, though. No, they, no, they don't. And uh, I think Carlton Davis is, is having a very underrated year. And I'm not saying that I think he can lock Calvin Ridley down uh, for an entire game, but I'd have as much confidence with him at least starting out uh, before you got into some sort of bracket coverage or cloud coverage uh, than I would most other corners in the conference. Um, so he gives you an advantage at least. And, and I think you look at, you look at Alabama – offensively, you know, there's still, there's not an answer for Ridley once he gets going. Uh, no, it's still crazy to me. We had this conversation with Nick Saban last week about mobile quarterbacks and how difficult it is and how there's still the unaccounted for man in a lot of defenses. And I, I looked at him, I said, coach, I heard Bill Oliver say the same exact thing when I was a redshirt freshman in Auburn and we were playing Quincy Carter in Georgia. Why has the defense not caught up? And he just basically said, because the problem is a lot of these kids that can run it can also throw it. And that can get you faster <laughs> exactly than right. the ones that can run it. So you got to take that too. So you're picking your poison one way or the other. And, and you just described why I'm picking Alabama in the game. Jalen Hurts is why I'm picking Alabama in the game. Because I feel like he's so dangerous, not just because of the way he runs the ball, but because of his escapability. He can, he can turn a sack into a 20-yard run. But he can also turn a sack into a play where he runs around and throws, a, a, you know, completes a pass. And he's done it all and, year. Yeah. And, and Stidham, as, as beautiful a ball as he throws, and, and he does make the right decisions on the read option, 
but I can't see him being able to to keep plays alive if his blocks break down. Well, the other the other part of that too is you look at the roller coaster ride that this Auburn offense has been this season. I mean, the offensive line is playing really good ball right now, but they've started seven different combinations. And Austin Golson, you could argue outside of Carryon Johnson, is the most valuable player on this team, maybe even more valuable than Carryon, because we don't really know what a Malik Miller or Cam Martin would do if they got that full opportunity. Probably not anywhere near what Carryon has done. But, I mean, Austin Golson's giving you center snaps, left tackle snaps, right tackle snaps, left guard snaps. And if you don't have that at certain points of the time, you could be in a lot of trouble. Uh, but to me, you look at what this offense was in the second half against LSU, what this offense was against Clemson, and certain other points in time in the season and last year, and there was that possibility that they're going to go conservative and they're going to coach tight and they're not going to be loose. And it's going to be either a plan that lacks creativity or a plan that tries to force feed you creativity and tricks themselves and gets a little too cute. And all of those things combined make me a little wary of not the personnel because Braden Smith is the second best guard in the country behind Quinn Nelson. And carry on Johnson is one of the better backs in the sec, if not the best back in the sec right now. And if he's not, the other one's playing on the other team, Damian Harris. And, uh, you know, like I just said, Austin Golson is extremely valuable, but Jared Stidham has done some really nice things. He's been extremely efficient. It's not about, the personnel. It's about what will the plan be? What plan will be put in place to potentially allow them to go out and be successful? And if that's not even there, then they're not getting off the ground and it won't matter. It's going to be a fun, fun game. And remember, the last time this game decided the SEC West, it was the kick six. So it's going to be about as intense an environment as there is. And Cole, as a veteran of several Iron Bulls, what what is that like as a player? That that atmosphere going into that game. It's a lot of fun, and I tell people a lot of times, Andy. Actually, I talked to Javier Arenas down on the field before last week's Alabama Mercer game. He, we were talking about Iron Bowls and memories, and I said to him, I said, you know, I, I always describe this game to people as one of the cleanest, if not the cleanest, that I played in every year. He kind of looked at me like I was crazy. I said, let me explain. I said, I think the fear factor during the week for players who know they're going to contribute of not wanting to be the guy that makes the big mistake forces you to be more focused than you normally are. And then once you get in the game, no one wants to be the guy that drops a catch no one wants to be the guy that gets a stupid penalty, gives up a sack, throws an interception that costs you the game. Because that's what will be talked about forever. And people will always remember that. And he yeah, brought, as good as he, Bo Jackson is, wrong way Bo's a thing. Right. And people, I mean, he even pointed out to me, he said, you know, I was returning punts when I seen my, my freshman year. He's like, I, I had no idea what I was doing. He said, but because it was that game and it was that big, I made sure I wasn't going to drop that punt when another game I might've been a little cocky and maybe a little more carefree and, and potentially dropped it. I think that game just does that to you. There was, there was people don't like to hear this because it's not as entertaining, but there was a lot less trash talk. There was a lot less activity after the play. I never got eye gouged in that game. I did in the Georgia team. I never got punched between the legs 
in that game. I did in the Arkansas game. So, you know, I didn't have a guy trying to trying to wrench my ankle like I did in the Mississippi State game. So, it's just a very different environment. But because I think everyone wants it so bad, and you know what it means, you also don't want to be the guy that screws it up. And you're willing to go out of your way from a, a focus and a discipline standpoint to try and prevent that from happening. Uh, for me, the coolest part was, was being able to play. I was lucky enough to play these in three different venues. And unless you played when I played, then you didn't have a chance to do that because the last time they did it was in 1898 and 1900. So I, I don't think many of those people are still allowed to tell us about it. No, no. But to be able to play one at Jordan-Hare, to be able to play the first one back at Bryant Denny in over 100 years, and be able to play the last one at Legion Field, that's the coolest part to me, is it, to experience it in three different ways. And I grew up in Homewood, Alabama, which is a couple miles from Legion Field. That place was exactly what the upper deck of the stadium said, the football capital of the South. That place was a football mecca to me, a sports mecca to me. I mean, that, that, that place was a temple, a shrine to football. And to be able to play in that game, even though we lost, it's still probably my most memorable moment in an Auburn uniform to be able to, to walk out. It's not a tunnel, it's like a covered chain link fence that you walk out of. So there's no tunnel you come out of. And just the amount of people that I saw that I knew standing around the fence in the stands, it was an unbelievable experience. And you know, you know what it means to everybody else in that state, in that stands, watching on television. And you're never going to experience anything else like it. And maybe unless you get to a Super Bowl. So the, this game is usually Thanksgiving weekend. What, what's Thanksgiving like for a player the week of the game? For me, it's... You know, you did, you did it. You did it with your teammates, and you had the ability to go home if you wanted to. Uh, if you live close by, which most of my relatives live in Columbia, South Carolina, we usually did Thanksgiving and Christmas there every year when I was growing up. So I just kind of did it on campus and would hang out with either a coach or some some teammates. We were going to one of their houses that was a much closer proximity. Um, the unfortunate part is it's, it's my favorite holiday and it kind of gets passed up because you're, there's so many other things consuming your thoughts. You just don't want to put a, time, a ton of time into that. So that, that part of it is a little bit unfortunate, but you know, you're with your other family, you're with your teammates, so you, you do celebrate it. The coaches do give you some time. Uh, and I think that if there, if there is an advantage of that holiday for these players, it's that it gets almost everybody else off campus. And, and you know what it's like practicing in the summer when no one's there for two days or practicing in the fall towards the end of the season when everybody's gone. It completely changes the dynamic of how you're able to focus, the amount of time that you actually want to spend at the facility because there's nothing else to go do. I mean, the town's just pretty much shut down. So I think that actually helps the players focus a little bit more as well. Well, now, now that you're out of that and, and you're not worrying about practicing on Thanksgiving Day, what, what is a Thanksgiving like at the Cubelic House? It's pretty cool now. Um, we live in Decatur, Alabama, and my mother-in-law is, I mean, she's, she's like, she, she is a minor league Betty Crocker. And, <laughs> and, and, Mine too. She, she is a, uh, you know, she's a triple she's a A Martha Stewart. And <laughs> nice. she can she can get it done in the kitchen, and we usually have everyone over to her house. So there's multiple families that that show up there. For us, it's a mile from our house, so it's very easy to get in and get out. 
Uh, we don't have to unpack and stay and, and travel. Uh, we can just drive down the street. When I want to go home and watch football, I can just leave and go home and watch football. So we, uh, we have a very similar we have a very similar arrangement where I live. We're uh, we're probably about 15 minutes from my wife's mom's house, and, and three of her sisters live in town with their families. So everybody just gathers at her mom's house, and and nobody's packing. I mean, everybody's just driving driving over there and, and eventually driving home. But uh, it's a it's a pretty nice deal, especially when mother in law does most of the of the heavy lifting. And, and we've kind of like, we've tried to take it off her hands on other holidays like Easter and Christmas and stuff. We can't wrench control of Thanksgiving from her. No. It ain't happening. Not going to happen. And I think that's the way they want it. That's the way it's probably going to always be. Um, but, man, it's, it's, it's a sight to behold because there's three or four tables set up and we're lined up and the kitchen's full of food. And it's a, um, it's a really cool time. It's a very enjoyable time. Everybody gets along. There's no drama, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. All right, so I know there are multiple plates for you at Thanksgiving dinner. What's your first plate? Your first ballot Thanksgiving Hall of Fame when when you when you get that the, the platter? I don't know if you you go Chinette platters like we do, but when you when you get that plate in your hands, what are you hitting first? Here's, a, here's my problem. If there is one, it's really not with Thanksgiving is I'm kind of the less miles of Thanksgiving. I, I don't, I don't veer too Terrible far down time management. <laughs> that too. Uh, I don't, I, I don't flip too many pages deep in the playbook. Um, I don't feel the need to go for every casserole. I don't feel the need to try every vegetable. I don't need to get a taste of every size. There are a couple of must haves for me on Thanksgiving. That first plate is going to be, if you're looking at the plate, you divide that thing up like a pie chart, it's going to be about 40% turkey, 40% stuffing. Yes, I said stuffing, and we're in Alabama. Uh, wow, they're going to throw then, you out of the state. <laughs> a couple sister Schubert rolls that, I, that I'm going to make. The, many, you, many, good, you, you, answered, you answered one of my later questions, because I was going to give you the, the sister Schubert's or Pillsbury's crescent rolls question. No, we go sister Schubert, and I am, I'm making a couple of gravy stuffing and turkey sandwiches with those bad boys gotta have a few oh that is that is next level right there and i like that my mother-in-law makes this this didn't used to make it in because my grandparents growing up didn't make this but she makes a sweet potato casserole which i'm not even going to try and talk my way out of it it's a dessert it really is it's not a of side. course it is it's a dessert the the, they, the, they the quote unquote <laughs> It comes with the regular portion of the meal, so I eat it, and that's about the other thirty percent of my plate with bread and gravy mixed in there. I don't need to. Get you, you, know what I, you know what I love about your plate, Cole? You, you, you're now a hundred ten percent of plate. Yeah, we, we, we pile on, so you get bonus round, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> that's thing. right. So there, there are a lot of other things they do. You know, they do this uh, green bean casserole that everybody loves. It has like. Cheese it's on it, and everybody says it's the best thing ever. Oh, they go cheese. They don't. They don't go the turkey. The turkey onion strings. No, that, that was always the the big one in my house. I don't need that. You know, mashed potatoes. I'll maybe get like a spoonful. And that was my go-to when I was a kid growing up. But I've kind of veered away from those a little bit. Don't really need them as much. I'll get maybe a spoonful of mashed potatoes on the second helping. Uh, but that's you know that, that's my go-to. I don't I don't have a very extensive playbook. We've simplified this thing uh, as I've gotten older. And we've dumbed it down. 
you're, you you have the the LSU pitch blast of, of Thanksgiving plates, which Stanford <laughs> stole, by the way. Have you noticed? Have you noticed Stanford running that play over and over again this year? There you go. Yeah. Same thing. So. So here's here's my thing, and and it's interesting you brought up Les Miles. So my Les Miles Thanksgiving issue is a time management issue, because I'm the one who always gets tasked with cutting up the turkey. You know, they hand me the 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 vibrating knife that only gets used to cut up the Thanksgiving turkey. Well, oh yeah, I can't do that without partaking. I eat all the skin because mm-hmm. I'm doing all the work, so I'm going to get the best part. And then it's a you know I cut a piece. Put it on the plate, cut a, tear off a little piece and eat it, cut another piece, put it on the plate. I, I try to get those little scallops at the bottom, you know, the big just hunks of, of meat that are for, you know, on a turkey, it's actually the, the size of like a big sea scallop. Um, I try to get that. And so I am full by the time we actually sit down to eat. But then, of course, I do get turkey, I get gravy, I get mashed potatoes and put more gravy on that. And then I make mac and cheese. I, I stole the recipe from this place in Michigan called Clarkston Union. And, and if you ever get up that way, Cole, if you're ever in Detroit for something, uh, it, it's north of Detroit on I-75, up near where the Pontiac Silverdome was. It's where the, near where the Pistons play. And um, so they have a restaurant called Clarkston Union. They have a sister restaurant called Union Woodshop. It's a barbecue place. Both of them serve this mac and cheese. It is the best mac and cheese on the planet. And the recipe's on the Internet. So I take that recipe. I add crumbles of thick of thick sliced bacon to it and i usually get a about a about a six inch square of that it's very thick it's more casserole than soupy i don't like soupy mac and cheese so i get about a six inch square of that and throw that on the plate and the turkey and and so you got the turkey the mashed potatoes and i may get some corn casserole uh if if there's cornbread dressing i'm going there uh, it depends on the year if we have that or not. Uh, my wife made something amazing with uh, it was like an apple cranberry dressing a couple years ago that was unbelievable. Like but, home and play or odd years for cornbread <laughs> cornbread dressing. I, it kind of I don't know. It, <laughs> it's it's weird. We go with fat and and then we do weird things like okay, so it has now become I guess a tradition. I don't know how else you would say it. at every family gathering. You put chips and salsa out as soon as everybody gets there, because the kid—that's what the kids want. You know, there's there's eleven grandkids. My mother-in-law has eleven grandkids, and they range in age now from uh, from five to sixteen, and they want chips and salsa. And it doesn't matter if it's Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, Cinco de Mayo. It does not matter. They're getting chips and salsa. So. That has now become a, a staple of the Thanksgiving dinner. Wow, you're the first Chips also on Thanksgiving family I've ever heard. So I, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what day it is. It's it, when that particular group of people gets together, you have to have like seven bags of corn chips and salsa. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense, but that's that's just how it goes. So now, what's your uh, what's your go to Thanksgiving dessert? This is uh, this is kind of like your cornbread dressing. I mean, it's kind of like a home and home, and then with the neutral side thrown in every now and then. Uh, I just um, growing up, it was always apple pie, vanilla ice cream. Don't show me anything else. Don't want anything else. Don't need anything else. I actually did not like 
pumpkin pie or pecan pie when I was a kid. Just didn't. It, That's it, a later it, in life kind of food. Both of those are. They're not man, a kid I food. Really, really come around. I'm a big fan of pumpkin pie now. It, it would probably be my number one if they're all laid out and I had a chance to go for it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you on to something that uh, it's unfortunate that I don't know if you'll ever get a chance to have any. But my mother-in-law, and it's pretty famous in, in these North Alabama parts because I talk about it on the radio a lot. She makes an ice cream pie that what? is the best dessert I've ever had in my life at any restaurant, anyone's house. Any what what what, what is ice cream pie? I need to know this now. <laughs> she grinds Oreos and makes a homemade crust out of the ground-up oh. Oreos. It's uh-huh. about a two-inch thick slab of homemade ice cream. Okay. With homemade chocolate sauce on top. And so I'm the talking, ice cream you said goes you like your, you said you like over the cream. Oreo crust. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. The ice cream, about a about two-inch thick slab of ice cream over the Oreo crust, vanilla ice cream, and then homemade... Homemade chocolate, chocolate sauce. Sauce. When you said you like your, oh. you like your mac and cheese stick. That's the way this chocolate sauce. Is. Oh like, my god, that you sounds can, amazing! You can turn a spoon upside down, and it's going to take about eleven seconds for it to hit the ground. <laughs> so it's like a Dairy Queen Blizzard, like when they they turn it upside down before they hand it to you. I'm talking just the chocolate sauce, not even the ice cream. Oh sauce. wow, the sauce too. Wow. Like you take a spoonful of that chocolate sauce and you hold your spoon up, and it's going to be seven, eight seconds for that thing gets to the ground. That's how thick it is. So she oh put my, that in this... the fridge. She put that in the freezer, and it all just comes together, and it'll blow your mind. And the, the unfortunate part is, she usually makes it when everyone comes in town or for my birthday, but she does it on Thanksgiving. So I actually have to force myself to pump the brakes a little bit on that second or third plate of actual Thanksgiving food because I know i got to save up for the ice cream pie. I, I don't know how you don't eat the entire ice cream pie. Like, I've done it before. Is there one for – okay. Is there one for you and one for everybody else? She actually does do that now. Uh, so, like, 4th of July when she knows that my sister-in-law and her husband and a couple other people are coming to town, she'll make two because she knows that I'll just sit around all day and won't eat anything, and then I'll eat, like, a bird at dinner, and then I'll just eat – almost an entire ice cream pie. And it got to the point where people were racing back for their second piece because they knew that I was going to get basically, you know, a 60% piece, and then I was going to go back for whatever was left. And now she's just like, I'll make two. Cole can have one, and nobody else can, can pick off the other. See, it's it's interesting. When, when you come upon a bottomless pit like me or Cole, you have to understand – the math doesn't work the way it always no. worked your entire life. You have to adjust for us. And sometimes that is a whole whatever it is, you know, a whole chicken, a whole pie, and accept the fact that we are going to eat it. And there's not going to be any left for you. So if you want more, make more. Absolutely. Pizza's the same way. If you're ordering pizza, don't get what you think everybody needs. Figure out what I need, and then order for everybody else around. Get a pizza for me, and then decide <laughs> how much else you need. But I am eating an entire pizza because you're putting it in front of me, and I, I don't leave portions. I, I, I can't do it. 
Nope. I just don't have that ability. So, Cole, we're, got, we're going to be in trouble. All right, go for it. You brought up the dressing and the stuffing debate. So where do you, where do mm-hmm. you stand on? Because there's two different directions. You can go which one you have, and then you can go the definition of, and if you have a problem with people calling it one thing when it's really the other. I, I don't have a problem because I had, uh, you know, so my, my in-laws are kind of from all over. And my like my mother in law grew up in Illinois. My wife bounced around a lot when she was a kid, uh, and her you know so her siblings did. And they so they call all everything different things. Um, different parts of my family uh, come from different places, so they call stuff different. Like my mom's side of the family, which is from Selma, Alabama, it's dressing, but they also call lunch dinner and dinner supper. So I mean, that. No, that's I mean that that is seriously, uh, but this that's Dallas County, Alabama. You, it's not your mom and dad; it's your mama, mama and Didi. So you, you got to understand that's just the way people talk. And well, I never so had not, dressing I, until my mother-in-law, and she's from Chicago, Alabama. So it's the same deal. I'm like, what is dressing? I don't have that. I never had that. Oh, yeah, it's and it's the same. Oh, it's, well, it's the it's same right, stuff. It's, although, yeah, then you it's get not, it, and it's the yeah. same thing. But it's not always stuffed into the turkey. I, no, I did notice up north they, they tend to cook it more inside the turkey, which is why it's called stuffing in the first place. Well, my dad's family's from Pittsburgh. So, you know, we usually have a side we did, not anymore, but when his parents were alive, you know, we, we got stuffed cabbage and pierogies, a bunch of stuff oh, that I have no nice. business even going anywhere near on Thanksgiving. Don't need any of that. But <laughs> I grew up eating stuffing out of the bird scraping that thing out of the bird and there yeah. was there was nothing better than that the turkey wasn't better the great the desserts weren't better than that stuff coming out of the bird so yeah see uh, I, I i like the out of the bird better although there's some recipes that just don't work if you try to do it in the bird because there, there's some you know items you're going to throw in there that that would cook wrong if they're in the oven that long so it's I, i'm it's weird I, i'm i'm weird about my barbecue and all that but I appreciate that there are these pockets of regional foods. Oh yeah, and nobody's is bad. Like you talk about the stuff in Pit- the stuff in Pittsburgh is great, and I'm all for all of it because it all tastes great. Well, let me ask you my last question here, and that is because you know Archie Say, my producer, he's bigger than both of us, so he he likes his food as well. He's a and man of large appetites. There is a staple for his Thanksgiving that he says is a must-have, and it's cranberry sauce. And not out of a can, homemade mm-hmm. cranberry sauce. Where do you stand on, on cranberry sauce for Thanksgiving? I, I can take it or leave it. I might grab a little bit of it. but I'm weird. I, I have these strange, just, I'm much more tied to memory than than even taste itself. And so... I think back to, to Thanksgivings with my mom and like we always had the can shaped cranberry sauce. So like if you hand me real homemade cranberry sauce, I'm like, I don't want any of this. But then but then if you plop some out of the ocean spray can, that's what I want. It's it, it's strange. It's more sentimental than, than taste based. No, it's like but, me and mac and cheese. You could you could give me your mac and cheese that you just said you made, or you could give me craft out of the box, which is what I. Oh, and you'll with. take the craft. I'm taking yeah, the craft. That's just that was my deal for such a long time. But it's oh, yeah. okay. I'm with you. I'm I am almost anti 
cranberry sauce. I don't care if it's if it's homemade. I, I don't care if it's out of a can. I just, I got no room for it. And my dad will put a whole sleeve of that stuff on his plate. He wants it. Yeah, no. On I, top of it, I like to add a little eat. color to the plate, but no, I don't want it. I I don't want the bitterness of the cranberry because you're using it to cut the saltiness or the savoriness of the gravy. I don't need that. I, I think gravy's perfect the way it is. I, got I don't need to cut it that. at all. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Cole, this has been incredibly informative. I'm very hungry. I'm going to go start making mac and cheese now. I'm going to commend you for one more thing before we end this podcast, and that is you actually putting in work, even if it's not the day of, day before, whatever, preparing anything, because Thanksgiving for me is not a time for work. I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I've always been fortunate enough to have enough people around that can handle making food, bringing food, having food available, that it's been a lot of sitting around and either throwing football in the yard or watching football on TV and not having to do anything. So I commend you well, for that. Well, that. that's why, I, that's why I make it turkey, today. Like, that's not my deal. Uh, that's the, well, listen, I cut the turkey because I get to eat more of the turkey and because I get all the skin. But the, the making of the mac and cheese today – it's better if you let it congeal in the fridge overnight before you yeah. bake it in the oven. So you let it congeal. One of those, mac and cheese is one of those rare foods that oftentimes is better as a leftover. Better the second day. That's exactly yeah. right. Very so rare. I make, I turn my, my fresh-made mac and cheese is actually a leftover when you look at it that way. I like it. I like it. it. It's, it's yeah, perfect. You, so. making, you cutting the turkey is the equivalent of me cooking breakfast. I'll look down exactly. and all of a you just want two bacon. of bacon left, and I'm like, yeah. wait. We had a whole pack, and it's like yep. I just eat it as fast as I can prepare it. Well, that's why I added the mac and cheese or the bacon to the mac and cheese because I get to eat half the package of bacon because <laughs> I don't need the whole thing. <laughs> I have an ulterior motive for everything I do, Cole. That's that's and it's it's usually taste based. So that's that's how it goes. I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go cook some bacon right now, and I'm gonna eat half of it, and half of it's gonna go in the mac and cheese, and life is perfect. Have a happy Thanksgiving. You too, Cole. Thank you so much. Anytime.